Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Genesis, the 18th chapter, verses 1 to 4 and 9 to 15. Let's listen together for what God is saying to the church. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree. They said to him, Where is your wife Sarah? And he said, There, in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Have I grown old, and my husband is old? Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall indeed I bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, Oh yes, you did laugh. The word of the Lord. The kids remind me of cookies, and cookies remind me that I forgot to invite everyone to our cookie time, our fellowship time right after worship. And speaking of food, we also have a, an initial new member lunch gathering happening right after coffee time. So cookies, then lunch, and childcare provided for anybody who'd like to explore membership here in this church. It's always a really meaningful time. Our second reading uh, this morning is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel in which we've been spending time in recent weeks uh, since Easter, this time from the ninth chapter, moving into the tenth chapter, starting with the 35th verse of Chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Then Jesus summoned the twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, a.k.a. Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. 
Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without payment, give without payment. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? May the meditations of our hearts together on your word this morning be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm coming up on my 32nd year of ordination or ordained ministry. It's really hard to believe until I look in the mirror. But I can't tell you how many times over those 32 years, and even when I was a seminarian before that, uh, how I heard, usually at a session or a board meeting, a session is the board of a local Presbyterian church, but sometimes in other other places in, in church life, I've heard something that goes like this. If I ran my business like this, I'd be out of business. And I'm always kind of proud when someone says that. They think they're getting me, but they're actually making me feel good about it. Um, It's a little bit of a corollary on that is uh, my very first session meeting back in July of 1991, uh, as I was asking, looking at the calendar very uncharacteristically, planning ahead, uh, and asking for uh, a weekend of vacation to fly back and do a wedding for a friend, and this elder whose pastor had, before me, had been there for 30 years, and he'd, the pastor always took vacation all at once in one month. They would go to North Carolina where they had a house. I didn't have any house to go to or any money to spend when I got there, so I couldn't take all of my vacation at once, so I needed to break it up. That was completely beyond their imagination. And this one elder, an older, an elderly elder, said, in my business, you have to work a whole year before you get any vacation. And while, even though I was raised in a military family and taught to respect my elders, I had to say, uh, I guess I'm glad I'm not in your business, because in my business, you get four weeks of vacation from the jump. And that's what I did. In business, it's a different bottom line, is it not? The bottom line in business is profit. It is making money for shareholders, or if you're an owner of a small business or your own business, it's making money, it's being successful, being able to pay your staff to improve your product, to live a good life, even not-for-profits, where, by the way, one can make quite a bit of money if you're in the right not-for-profit. The bottom line is efficient delivery of services, people uh, getting what they need to get from whatever it is you're providing. But our bottom line in the Christian church, well, it's different. But what is it exactly? It seems like a, like a silly question, like an obvious question, except I'd estimate that no one's really been able to answer it in the Western world for the last century or so very well. What is our bottom line? What are we about We haven't been able to answer it, even though the answer's been right under our nose, I would say, all along. Let's read what it says. 
This is one thing that people who wonder what the Bible says don't seem to do very much, and that is actually read it. I always tell my students, the answer is here, not here. Let's talk about God. Let's talk about the church. But they don't want to actually read the text. Let's just take a look here this morning. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus says, but the laborers are few. And in this passage, he sends out the 12 disciples to do the work that we're supposed to be doing. And there's this harvest, and apparently they're the few laborers. But what is the crop? What's the, what are we selling here? What's the bottom line? He says to them, don't take anything, don't expect anything, don't prepare anything, don't take any money. And a little bit later, he's going to say, and if they don't welcome you, shake the dust off your feet and keep moving. Off you go, let's go. And they're like, okay, but what am I supposed to be doing? Jesus says, right here, if you read it, go and proclaim the good news. Aha, that's the answer. The good news, right? What is the good news? Seems like a simple question with a simple answer, but then again, it gets a little complicated. Uh, The Greek word for good news, I think as a lot of us know, is oiangelion or evangelion or evangel, right? Uh, It's where we get the word, bless you, evangelism. It's where we get the evangelism committees, a big part of every Presbyterian church. And evangelism is either a holy word or a dirty word, depending on who you ask, right? And where you're talking about it. Evangelism has sort of, in this country, been co-opted in the last few decades by a particular social, cultural mindset, a set of positions politically and culturally, a kind of style even of being a Christian. But did you know that Presbyterians are an evangelical Protestant denomination? Because even though we may have a hard time defining it, we are all about the good news, the bottom line. And Jesus says right here, off you go. So we keep trying to do evangelism in the Presbyterian church. We try to get, uh, i got to use the fancy theological phrase, we're trying to get fannies in the pews. Right? That's the goal. So we get bigger signs and electric signs, and we adopt marketing campaigns. Just the other day I saw another one of those ads they sent to pastors about uh, these direct marketing campaigns to people who've just purchased homes in the neighborhood. Right? That's supposed to work. Um, We're always hoping to attract new people, younger people, and the holy grail for church, young families. Moment of silence for young families. (laughs) They're the best, apparently. So we try to give them contemporary music. We take off the robes. Hopefully we have something underneath. We have support groups. I heard about a church down the shore that has a drive-through communion thing that they do, Uh, but my favorite idea that came around here was to have a barista in the the lobby, which we call the narthex, right? Just a place you can go right out there, get a latte, come right back in, right? People are nodding, thank you. Okay, not everybody's nodding, but a lot of you are nodding. And if you have a barista back there, you're not going to be nodding off. Thank you. I'm here till Thursday. Try the veal. All right. 
Of course, none of this alone works. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard other churches say, if we just had contemporary music, they'd all flock in here. Eh, it doesn't really work that way, i got to say. Um, so the real question is still, why are we doing all this? What's the bottom line? Um, what is the end result? What's the goal here? I mean, what is the good news? Is it that I'm going to get you to convert to my way of believing and thinking? When I was younger, I sensed that that a lot of the times was the bottom line for preachers. And that always made me sense that they didn't really, they weren't really secure in their beliefs because they really needed other people to affirm that by getting to agree with them. And I, I, that always made me kind of suspicious. Um, am I doing evangelism so you can send me money? Because I could really use a private jet. Right? And some of my colleagues apparently have them. What's going on, man? I got into the wrong part of this business, apparently. Um, I'm going on vacation this summer. A private jet would be very convenient for me. Um, is, is evangelism, is, is the bottom line to create allies, advocates, so that we can vote against tax hikes together or vote against abortion restrictions together or to vote for gay or trans rights together or do anything together and hang out together with people who agree with us um, and never really face challenges or differences or be honest because we're not all the same even if we agree on certain things. Is evangelism about just getting people to come to worship and to teach morals and a good way of raising children? I, he sends us out. He sends them out and we are them. We're the church. But doesn't really answer the question why let's keep reading always in the text again people look up from the page and they want to think well I, here's what I think no no just read it'll be there it's... our text this morning starts Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness he says later, go out and proclaim that good news. But before that, right at the start of this passage today, a really important sentence. When he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That is a very important sentence. They were like sheep without a shepherd. One of the most interesting films, not my favorite film, but interesting if you think about it, uh, by the British comedy troupe Monty Python is called The Meaning of Life. It's a series of what seem like unrelated, nonsensical sketches that taken together kind of get at the question of the meaning of life, at least exposing the hypocrisy and emptiness of so much of how we humans live our lives. I recommend it. And my favorite scene in The Meaning of Life, and there are a few, is the 100-yard dash for people with no sense of direction. There are runners, the best runners from all countries. They're all together at the starting line. They're warming up. They're stretching. They've worked hard. They're ready to go. They're practicing their starts. The announcer names each one in each country the runner comes from, introduces each athlete. The starter raises his arms. 
the runners take their marks, the starting gun goes off, and completely sure of themselves and very fast, having trained and prepared all their lives, all the runners take off all at once in different directions. Jesus makes the same point today with a different image. Imagine a flock of sheep milling around in a pen or up on a hillside somewhere, frightened and confused, knowing the wolf is out there, stumbling blindly, bumping helplessly into one another because they don't know which way to turn, like so many of us in our honest moments so much of the time. You know, just a few years before The Meaning of Life, which is like a 40-something-year-old movie now, Bob Dylan, you might have heard of him, uh, wrote a song called Rolling Stone and asked, how does it feel, how does it feel to be on your own with no direction home? A complete unknown, like a rolling stone. We have so many options these days. So many directions we can choose to go in. And most of us, so much of the time, don't get anywhere, ever. We have so many invitations from so many people to do so many things, and so many of us are still isolated. Jesus had compassion on those crowds 2,000 years ago. And Jesus, God with us, God's self-giving to us has compassion on those crowds right now, today. That is the bottom line. That's what we're about. It's right there. The answer's always in the text. Compassion is the bottom line. Suffering with, caring, showing sympathy, empathy, love, making the effort, not expecting any payment in return. And we need to recognize, we have to be willing to recognize as a church that when we reach out to people in Christ's name, is not, it's not because we're trying to get them to come here. If that's our goal, it's not going to work. It's not to build up the church's membership roles or finances to pay for kids' programs and our amazing music ministry and our staff, which is also amazing, mostly. Um, that's not the goal. You know, just announcing something and putting it into the bulletin these days doesn't work. You have to do that to kind of get it out there as sort of a foundation. But then you have to be willing to share how important that, that program you're inviting them to is to you. It has to matter to you, this thing that we're doing, this program that you're inviting people to. It has to be important to you, and you have to be willing to trade on that to let them know you'd like them to come because it matters so much to you, but you want to have them to have a little piece of that, to experience what you've experienced. Passion is contagious. Information is not. We are inviting people here so that they can find their way home to themselves, to have a place where they feel secure in the deepest sense of the word, fulfilled at peace, loved. Yesterday's New York Times had a letter to the editor from a guy named Stephen Sorcher out of North Carolina 
who quoted Hippocrates, the, I guess the first doctor, uh, who said, it is more important to know what sort of person has a disease than it is to know what sort of disease a person has. Did you catch that? It's more important to know what sort of person has a disease than it is to know everything about the disease that some person has. And then Mr. Sorcher concluded his letter, choosing the right words requires healthcare providers first to really listen to patients. Truly appreciating the unique personality of each patient is the key first step in finding the best words to express sympathy, empathy, compassion, and hope. And Mr. Sorcher was responding to an article in the Times earlier that had talked about how AI, artificial intelligence, can generate scripts for doctors and healthcare providers. Compassion is personal. Compassion is about listening. Compassion is the bottom line, and it's all we need to be able to do to do this thing called church. We don't have to have great finance people on the finance committee. It helps, but we don't have to. I'd much rather have somebody driven by love and the need to show compassion in every slot. That's what makes all the difference, because compassion is contagious. It's the only reason he sends us out. It's explained and said explicitly in today's text. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he calls them, and then he sends them out. Can you think of a better description of us today in the postmodern world than this? Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So many people today feel unloved and unvalued, and they keep it a secret from everybody. They feel estranged from others, from God. People are, are told overtly or by society implicitly that they have no value of their own. They've got to go out and win it, accomplish it, be given it by other people, get enough likes. So with our marching orders well in hand, go out and be compassionate. I'd like to conclude with two stories showing, exemplifying compassion, but there are, there are stories about fathers. Uh, we fathers, we can't compete with Mother's Day, but we can get a little, little foot in the door here. Um, there's a beautiful scene in the movie Dr. Zhivago. The comrade general is talking with Tanya, who, unbeknownst to Tanya, is Zhivago's daughter. Dr. Zhivago is asking her about one of the traumatic experiences of her childhood, a time when she became separated from her adoptive father, a lawyer named Komarov. So the comrade general asks her, how did you come to be lost that day? She replies, well, I was, I was just lost. He asks her again, no, how did you come to be lost? Tanya doesn't want to say. She says simply, oh, I was just lost. My father and I were running through the city, and it was on fire. The revolution had come, and we were trying to escape, and I was lost. The comrade general asked more emphatically, how did you come to be lost? She still didn't want to say. Finally, though, Tanya did admit, we were running through the city, and the city was on fire, and my father let go of my hand, and I was lost. 
Then she added plaintively, he let go. That's what she hadn't wanted to say. The comrade general said, this is what I've been trying to tell you, Tanya. Komarov was not your real father. Zhivago is your real father. And I can promise you, Tanya, that if this man had been there, your real father, he would never have let go of your hand. And that's the difference between a real father and a fake father, a false father. Is it not? I am adopted, but I've got a real father because he would never have let go of my hand, and he never has. A real father isn't necessarily a biological father. A real father is a father who doesn't let go, no matter what. There is a difference between a real God and a false one as well, a direction worth running toward, and a direction that has nothing waiting for you at the finish line. The second story is about a guy who, like a lot of us guys, dads, fathers, has been assigned on his way home from work to stop by the grocery store to pick up a list which has been provided for him by someone else. Let's just say someone else. Rhymes with life. So this dad wanders aimlessly around the grocery store for a while, searching out the things on the list. This I can relate to. And as is often the case in grocery stores, another thing I can relate to, this dad kept passing the same other shoppers in different aisles, and they were other fathers trying to shop either with a list in their hand, looking completely befuddled and overwhelmed, or with a fidgety three-year-old in the cart, whatever it was. And this one dad with a three-year-old in the cart was sort of within earshot of the hero of our story, and... He overheard the dad with the three-year-old uh, answering his three-year-old son over and over. The boy was asking for a candy bar, and he was squealing and getting upset, and, and, and the one dad could hear the other dad who was dealing with his son struggling with his son. So our observer couldn't quite hear all the conversation, but he did hear, hear the dad say, now, Billy, this won't take long. And as they passed into the next aisle, you could hear the three-year-old's voice getting louder and stronger and more un unhappy. The pleas had increased several octaves at this point, and Dad was quietly saying, Billy, just calm down. This will be over in a minute. It'll be over in a minute. And when, when they passed the dairy case, the kid was now screaming uncontrollably. Poor Dad doesn't know where to find groceries, has to deal with this screaming three-year-old. Uh, but he was still keeping his cool, and in a very low voice, you could hear him, Billy, settle down. We're almost out of here. And the dad and his son finally get to the checkout counter, pulls out his money, um, just ahead of this other dad, the observer, who's been following them this whole time. Um, and he still no, gave no evidence, this stressed out dad, of losing control or comp his composure. Even though the boy was screaming and kicking, dad was just saying there at the checkout counter calmly over and over, Billy will be in the car in just a minute, and then everything, everything's going to be okay. Well, the observer, the bystander, the dad with no kid, was so impressed that after paying for his groceries, he caught up with this dad and his three-year-old out in the parking lot, and he said, he, he could hear him say, finally, Billy, we're done, we're done, it's going to be okay. So he tapped the father on the shoulder, and he said, sir, I couldn't help but watch how you handled little Billy. You were amazing. And the dad replied, oh, his name is Wesley. I'm Billy. 
Sometimes you have to show compassion to yourself. That's all we're about in the church. You have to believe it will work. You can't laugh. Or if you do, you have to admit that you did and let compassion go to work in your life and more importantly, through your life anyway. That's all that we're called to do. He sends us out. May God be with us as we go. Amen.